Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. I'm actually excited today to be continuing this series on the life of King David that we started a few weeks ago. Um, and, and we're looking at, at the life of King David, who was, um, he was one of ancient Israel's, I would say, maybe their greatest king ever. Um, and today we're going to actually dive into what's generally considered maybe one of the darkest points in David's life. And I think you'll see why after a while. But, and then next week, we're going to see one final kind of bright and hopeful characteristic of his kingship, and that's going to kind of coincide with Dedication Sunday and all of our families. But um, I, I think that David, even though he's you know, maybe ended what, in what I would, or as what I would call the Israel's greatest king, he certainly didn't start out that way. And David kind of steps onto the pages of history as uh, a shepherd boy. He was a musician. He was a poet. Um, he was a warrior. He was a fighter. He was all of those things. But by the end of his life, I don't think David was sure. And I think that maybe even the people that were closest to him weren't really sure if David uh, was, in fact, Israel's greatest king. But I think David's life leaves us with this just amazing understanding, this amazing confidence and, and trust in God, like, you know, past to over all the low points and the dips and the valleys and the failures. There's just this overarching kind of faith and trust and confidence in God that David had um, that just transcends all of his failures and his brokenness and, and those kinds of things. And it's again, it's not that he was without failure. He certainly, certainly wasn't. And there was one thing in particular that he never got to do. But by the time his life was over, it didn't even seem to matter really with his kind of untapped potential still with God. And here's the thing I think about the life of David as I look and everything that happened to him, everything that happened by him. Um, I think David kind of reminds us of one thing for sure, and we would all probably agree with this, right? Life rarely goes as planned. Like, can I hear a big amen from somebody that's got sucker punched by life? Yeah, <laughs> careful all the married folks who you say that in the direction of, but just life doesn't always go as planned. We all have this kind of sneaking suspicion, right, at different moments, different chapters, seasons of life, you know, like, man, I, I don't think I meant to end up here, you know, like, I hope things would, would be kind of maybe close to where they are, but, and, and we should all have plans. We should all have goals and aspirations and, and dream, and man, if you're going to dream, dream big, right? I, I can remember when I was younger, uh, before I had a car, right? I can remember talking with my friends, and my friends be like, man, I wish I had like a a, a Honda Accord coupe. I remember my one friend, he's like, man, I wish I had a Honda Prelude. You guys remember Honda Preludes back in the day? Might be dating myself. I wish I had the sport Honda. Pre I'm like, man, you can't afford a Prelude. If you're going to dream, it's all a dream. Dream big, man. I want an accurate NSX. I want a Lamborghini. Like if I'm going to dream, like I'm going for that, you know, but, but the thing is, as big as our dreams are, reality is bigger, Right? That's just the way it is, right? Reality always seems to win over dreams, and things don't always go as we planned, and sometimes things don't go as we, we planned because of what others do, and sometimes things don't go as we planned because of what we do. In this next slide that I'm going to show you, this can, you know, this can make things just like really, really depressing at times, you know? Or maybe once we get to this next slide, maybe you'll understand and, and agree with me on sometimes. There are some times that we realize what a huge blessing this is, and that's this that some of our dreams just won't come true. That's it. Jared's inspirational speeches. Book me for your next life event or birthday party now. Some of your dreams won't come true. 
And as bad as that is, it gets even worse. Some of your dreams can't come true. Ouch. This hurts. Like, where's the stuff where God loves me and he's going to smooth the path and all, you know. No, and this is just a fact. We all know this. We've lived this. We've experienced this. And sometimes our dreams won't come true. Sometimes they can't. Because you're not worthy? No. Because you've been too bad? No. Because God's not good? No. Nothing like that. But because life is complicated. And our lives are interwoven with other people's lives. Other people that we don't control. We can't control. We've tried controlling. We can't. And other people's lives intersect with ours and bump into ours and sometimes can send us, send us careening off course. But, you know, it's just a fact that, you know, he or she may not be the one that you end up living happily ever after with. It's just true that some of us may never walk a daughter down the aisle. It's just true that maybe your current relationship is starting to look and feel a little bit like your last one. Maybe a wandering son or a wandering daughter. It just... It's just starting to look like they're never going to come home. It looks like he's going to marry her anyway. It looks like money's always going to be tied. And this is just, it's just life. It just happens to us. And we don't know what to do with this. And we struggle for answers during these times. And this is, you know, when we get to some of these dark times and these dark kind of seasons of life, this is like sometimes when we start reaching out for God. Maybe we've kind of put God to the side for a while, but maybe these things kind of drive us to God. And if you don't have a religious background or didn't have a religious background, then there's kind of this general sense of unfairness, like the universe is against us, right? Or or maybe you do have some kind of church background. Maybe you did grow grow up as a Christian or going to Sunday school or, or, you know, summer camps, that kind of thing. And honestly, that can actually feel a little bit worse. Like, you're pretty sure you've been an okay person. I mean, you're not perfect, but who is? And so God, like, I thought you owed me this. God, I was trying to be a good person, and I was kind of trying to be kind and, and charitable, and I thought that would have, would have at least gotten me to, the, to the, you know, the start, like at least open the door, at least give me the opportunity. I waited. I, I behaved. I played by the rules, right? I, I raised them right. What happened to sowing and reaping? What happened to cause and effect? And sometimes we know it. We, we do everything We do everything right, and we play the game right, and we live the right way only to see some of our dreams just not coming true. And sometimes we, we know some of them seems like they can't come true, right? And then sometimes we even struggle with, with envy and jealousy. It feels like God got the delivery address wrong. Like somebody else is living my blessing. Somebody else is driving my accurate NSX, right? Like I'm, I'm on the freeway and I see an 80-year-old man driving my Lamborghini. Like, wait, what? You can't even enjoy it at that point. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But your dream, my dream, ends up in somebody else's life. And so what do we do? What do we do when our dreams can't come true? And specifically, since you're in church, what do you do with your faith? What do you do with your trust in God? What do you do with like living a Christian life, if we can call it that? What do you do with with living out this faith-filled life, walking by faith, living by faith? What do we do with prayer? What do we do especially when prayers go unanswered? What do we do when our faith and our trust is under fire. And we started a few weeks ago looking at David and, 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 and in one of the episodes we looked at, David, looked at David in his early 20s and we saw that David was beginning to realize that some of his dreams would not come true. And David, he hadn't even just made plans for his future. David had actually been given 
plans for his future by God. And then King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, started going kind of crazy. And when David started kind of gaining some notoriety and gaining some fame, Saul started deciding, or Saul decided that David just needed to be taken down a notch. So he tried to have him arrested at first, and then he decided that David had to die. And David, at 22 years old, goes on the run, a fugitive from the king. He has to leave his wife. He has to leave his home, leave his family, his brothers and his father and mother and his, his friends, and he's on the run. He's out in the desert. He's living in caves. He's got no resources. He's got no money. He's got no comfort. He's on the run because of someone else. Like David did nothing wrong. He was fighting for God, leading God's armies, protecting the nation of the people of God. And we saw that David gets a little bit angry, I think, like we all would. David starts to get a little bit bitter, like we all would probably, right? And he makes some rash decisions. He does some things that are, you know, maybe the most obvious responses to, to have and decided to act in, in ways that ended out or turned out with horrible, horrible consequences. Made some really bad decisions, ended up uh, decisions and cost other people their lives. And, and David learned that other people can sometimes undermine our dreams and plans. And he learned it at 22 years old. David was on the run. Now, here's the thing. As David got older, and we're going to see this because we're going to jump kind of to the end of his life today, towards the end of his life, but as David got older, he did seem to learn a lesson. He did seem to learn something that we should all do when other people maybe undermine our own plans or maybe even ourselves when we begin to undermine our own dreams and our own plans, right? And, and, and I think that this holds some real value for us because we've all been here. We've all had other people undermine our plans, and we've all done things that have undermined our own dreams and plans. Can I hear an amen from anybody? Let me know you're still out there because these lights are bright, and the water's hot, and I'm sweating up here. It's humid up here on the stage. But I think that all of us, we've been here, or we will be soon, and, and David shows us something so beautiful, and there's something so peaceful in what David um, you know, has to share with us by the end of his life. So today, we're jumping like way far ahead into the future. 22, David finally gets made king 22 years after David is made king. He's been a king for 22 years. He's in his early 50s by now. And listen, early 50s, like more and more, that seems pretty young. Like, you know, that's not too bad, right? But uh, 11th century BC, like you lost most of your teeth by your early 50s. You probably didn't smell that good, right? And it wasn't like even you smelled like Bengay. It just didn't smell good. Like it, you know, and, and, and they, they lived a lot of hard time outdoors with no sunblock. We're weathered and, and rough. And David's not the young, bright-eyed giant killer that he was at 22 years old. He's 22 years a king. He's a grizzled, crusty old man, and he's getting kind of tired. And Samuel tells us in 2 Samuel 11, 1, it says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, like this was war season, David sent Joab, his trusted commander, sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. And we don't really know why. We assume it's because David was getting older, but really he wasn't, he was still kind of agile. We're going to see he was still like capable during that time at, at 51 years old or 61 years old. And, 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 you know, maybe because he was old or whatever it is, David stays back when he should have been off with his men. David stays back. He was a soldier of soldiers. He was a leader of soldiers and commanders. And this year he stayed behind with none of his companions. And as we're about to see, maybe the most dangerous part to him staying back is that he had no one to counsel him. He's the king 
and nobody that he trusted to speak back or to give a, a contrary opinion. None of them were there to stay with David. And so he's on his own. And, and we talked about this again in week two, that anger, isolation, and fear, those three things, when we go through those three seasons in life and they come up at different times, those are the three ingredients of a downfall in our lives. And David has made himself isolated from anybody that can speak into his life. Well, one night, he, you know, it's evening time, and he's a little bit restless, so David gets up, and he's walking along the palace walls and kind of looking down into the city, and while he's looking, he looks down and sees a woman who's taking a bath, and this woman is gorgeous, and David becomes a peeping Tom, and he's watching this woman take a bath, and he calls one of his servants over, and he's like, hey, I want you to go on this mission. He sends a servant on this scandalous mission to go and find out who this, lady's you know, who this lady was, and it turns out her name was Bathsheba, and he saw her taking a bath. Like, that's just a strange coincidence. It's not made up, but it turns out that Bathsheba is actually the wife of one of his soldiers. She's Uriah the Hittite. I, I like how they, they put those thes in there. Uriah the Hittite instead of a last name. And, and David knows that Uriah is not home because David sent him off to war. And David does what any of his counselors would have told him not to do. David sends word to Bathsheba and tells her to come to the palace. And she does come to the palace. And Bathsheba ends up becoming pregnant. And we touched on this briefly when we talked about Saul in, in week number one, that God had never wanted Israel to have a king. God had never wanted Israel to have a king. He wanted his people, the people of Israel were supposed to be the people of God. And he wanted them to be different than everybody else. And he didn't want them to have a king. God said, let me be your king. And Israel said, no, we want a man to be our king like all of the other nations have men who are their kings. And so then they went around looking for the tallest guy they could find. They found the tallest guy they could find. His name was Saul. And they made him king because he was tall. That was their criteria for being king. And Saul was the first king, David's the second. Turns out David was short. It's, really, it's actually true. So they went from tall to short. They're like, well, that didn't work. Let's go here. Solomon was probably somewhere in the middle, average height. He's just, but they wanted a human king. But God knew, God knew there were problems that come with having a king. And the first problem that comes with having a king is that you can't tell the king no. A servant sent on a mission to find out who Bathsheba is. He can't say no. Bathsheba, summoned to the palace, can't say no. The commander of an army, as we're about to see, can't say no. But one man, Uriah, the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, he did tell the king no. And what happens is that David finds out that you know, Bathsheba sends word to David, I'm pregnant, and it's yours. And, and David knows. He, he comes up with a plan. I know how I'm going to solve it. I know how I'm going to fix this. And he sends word for Uriah to come home from the battle. Hey, come home, Uriah, and give me a report on how things are going. And Uriah comes, and he's like, well, okay, I'll be the messenger. Things are going well. You know, like thumbs up. Everything's good. And David says, well, great. You know, thanks for that report. Why don't you go ahead and go home and, and spend the night with your wife at home? Have a night off, some R&R. &R. You know, you get a free pass. And Uriah says, you know, I can't do that. He, he leaves the palace. He doesn't really say anything to David. Leaves the, the throne room. But he doesn't go home because Uriah's brothers are still on the battlefield. Uriah's brothers are still losing their lives. And he's such a dedicated and honorable man. He says, no, I won't spend my night in comfort while they are spending their night in distress. And, and David finds out about it the next morning, you know, that Uriah has told him no. And David says, well, man, i got to fix this. Now he's not, he's not, things aren't going according to plan. So he calls Uriah back in. He says, hey, listen, why didn't you go home? And he says, well, I can't go home. My men are still about, you know, they're losing their lives, and I can't go home. So David says, well, I tell you what, have some wine. And so Uriah has some wine. And David gets Uriah drunk. 
like wasted drunk, and then he sends him home for the night. But even drunk Uriah won't go home. And he actually spends the night on the steps of the palace. And here's why nobody can tell the king no. When David realizes that Uriah is not going to go home, David calls him back to the throne room one more time. And David writes a message to Joab, the commander of the armies, and David seals it. And he gives the message to Uriah to take to Joab, the commander of the armies. And Uriah has no idea that he's carrying his own death sentence. And David tells Joab in the message, put Uriah in the hottest, most vicious area of the battle. And when all of the enemy has come to that point and focused on that point, you draw everybody that's around Uriah, you draw them back and leave him to be surrounded and cut off. And Joab does it because you can't tell the king no. And Uriah dies in battle. And Bathsheba is mourning. And David pulls Bathsheba into the palace and he marries her. And, and, and people around are thinking maybe on the surface, oh, he looks so kind and loving. He's comforting a, a weeping widow and, and raising someone else's child. And it looks like David maybe got away with it. But in the time of servants, I mean, the walls talked during those times. And nothing was ever, ever a secret. And the word of what David did gets to the main preacher or pastor. They were called prophets back then. The main prophet of Israel named Nathan. And Nathan decides to go to David, and he begins to tell David this story. David, there was a man who had tons of sheep. I mean, just herd upon herd of sheep. He was a very wealthy man, and he had a friend that came to visit him one day. And what he did was he had a neighbor who was poor and only had one sheep. And to give his friend a meal, this rich man went to the poor man's ranch and stole his one sheep and took it home and sacrificed it and fed his friend, the stranger. And David's enraged. He's incensed. He's like, that can't go on in Israel. That can't be allowed to happen. And David demands, I'm going to bring that man to justice, and we're going to deal with this, this rich man who has decided to steal from someone who only had one. And Nathan points a bony preacher finger in David's face, and he says, David, you are that man. You have taken Uriah's wife. And David, he's struck with conviction. He's struck with guilt. He realizes what he's done, and he, he's broken God's law. And I mean, we all have to some degree, but the redeeming quality of David was that he was king. And even when he broke God's law, he humbled himself, and he allowed God's law to break him. And David repents before God, and as much as he can in this natural life, he tries to make things uh, better, tries to smooth things over. But this is something that we all know. Every sin comes bundled with consequences. We can be forgiven of sins, but there are still consequences for our actions. And those consequences are inescapable. Every choice that we make and every action that we do leads to a defined set of circumstances. And Nathan begins to warn David of some of the consequences that are coming on him. And he says, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household, David, I am going to bring calamity on you. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all the people. David, because you're a leader of my people, the results and the consequences of what you have done will be seen by all the people. David, the king is accountable to the kingdom for his deeds. And David kind of shows why he was loved by so many. He just owns up to his failure. He confesses his sin. He doesn't try and hide it or excuse it or justify himself. He, he just, you know, and we get this, right? Like we've all done things, maybe not as horrible as murder and these kinds of things, but we've all done things and we've had people do things to us. Doesn't it just feel better when someone doesn't try and excuse it, but when they just say, I messed up? And that's what David does. 
I've sinned. I've messed up. And, and he, sa- he tells Nathan in verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And again, this is one of the reasons that David was so loved. Not because he was perfect, he wasn't, none of us are. But because when he failed, he confessed and repented of his sin. And even though David was the king in Israel at that time, he never saw himself as the true king of Israel. That's why we called this series the second place king. David always saw himself as the second place king. Even though the people didn't want God as their king, David, the king, accepted God as the king, the true king of Israel. He always saw himself as accountable to the king of every king. And so David has a very public consequence coming from within his own house, but it doesn't come right away. And I think David forgets about it, and I think Bathsheba forgets about it. I think the people that know what's going on kind of forget about it. A year passes by, nothing happens. Two years go by, and nothing happens. Five years, seven years, and finally, ten years later, the brokenness that David has introduced into his own family starts producing rotten fruit because that's what brokenness does. And David's oldest son's name was Amnon, and he had a half or a daughter named Tamar, and Tamar was the half-sister to Amnon. They, they shared David as their father, but they had different mothers, and Amnon was the next to be king. But then there's this strange thing going on in the story where Amnon, actually, in, in biblical language, he burned with lust towards his half-sister Tamar. He wants to be together with his half-sister Tamar, and they, he, you know, he can't get Tamar out of his mind, and she isn't even aware of him. Like that. And so Amnon can't get her attention. And so what he does one day, he fakes being sick. Like he pretends he's deathly ill. And everybody hears about it. And David goes to visit him and says, Amnon, my son, you know, I'm sorry that you're sick. And Amnon says, Well, I tell you what, can you just have Tamar bring me a special meal? And David says, Sure, why not? He does, he's not aware of what's going on. And so David allows Tamar to take Amnon a special meal. And Amnon, when Tamar comes to bring him the meal, he sends everyone away and it's just the two of them and and he begins to tell her I'm in love with you and I want to be with you and and I I want you know I'm inviting you into my bedchamber and and she responds to him no my brother I apologize she responds to him no my brother she said to him don't force me such a thing should not be done in Israel don't do this wicked wicked thing but he refused to listen to her and since he was stronger than she he raped her his own brother, her own brother raped her, his own sister. He raped in David's house. David has this trouble, this horrible tragedy in his home, his own son violating his own daughter. And David wasn't even aware that all this storm was coming. It's been 10 years in the making since all of this dysfunction is going on. And then the biographers of of this story, they tell us something that's just so gut-wrenching. They say, then, and it's like right then, Like while they're still there, after he has just done this horrible thing to his half-sister, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And she's broken. Tamar's distraught. And in that culture, she's no longer pure. In that culture, she's a princess, but she's no longer eligible for a fairy tale marriage. She's damaged. She's unwanted by princes of other king, uh, kingdoms. And, and she may never end up marrying. And again, with, with servants around, there are no secrets. And word spreads quickly. And word gets to David. And listen to this. When David hears what his son Amnon has done to his daughter Tamar, David does nothing. He does nothing. And it's confusing. And it's horrible. 
And it's perplexing, and we don't really know why he did nothing. It's never explained. And the way that David later in life would respond to other tragedies, there, there's kind of this general thinking that perhaps when David did what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah, that David kind of lost any sense of moral authority. Like David never seemed to want to pass judgment on anyone. Who was David to pass judgment on anyone after what he had done? And when Amnon did what he did to Tamar, David just lets the situation sit. And it's an almost impossible situation that he eventually just keeps letting sit there. But David has another son, and we meet his other son in the story about this time. His name is Absalom. He's the third son of David. He's the full brother of Tamar. They share, not only David as their father, but also they share the same mother. And he takes Tamar into his home, and he gives her a place, and he cares for her. He doesn't want her to be exiled. He doesn't want her to be ostracized from the family and everybody else. Absalom loves his sister Tamar, and, and he says nothing about what's happened. He never confronts Amnon. He never gets into a fight. He never, you know, beats him up. He never does anything. He never brings charges. And for two years, the whole family just kind of tries to recover from this horror. And it's like nothing ever happened until one day Absalom calls a feast for all of the extended family. All of David's sons and daughters and the half-brothers and half-sisters, they're all there. He, he brings all the family together. And, and, and man, when everybody comes over, Absalom gets everybody drunk again, wasted. You ever notice that nothing good ever happens when people get drunk? Like nobody ever gets wasted and builds a children's hospital. Like nobody ever gets high and ends hunger in a South American village. Like it doesn't happen. People get wasted, people get high, and bad things happen all the time. Absalom gets everybody drunk, everybody wasted. And when everybody's drunk, Absalom sends his servants into the banquet hall. And in front of all the brothers and sisters, those servants slaughter Amnon right there and put him to death. Everybody's instantly sober. Everybody scatters. Everybody runs. They don't want to have any associates. They don't even want people knowing that they were there. And Absalom he runs the farthest. He leaves the nation of Israel, heads north to what we would call Syria. And when David hears that his son Absalom has murdered his oldest son Amnon, David does nothing. He does nothing. This tragedy has come into his house. Brokenness that he has introduced from his own compromise of his own integrity. It's starting to take root and it's starting to produce evil fruit even among his own children. Three years later, though, time's gone by, and David misses his son, and he invites him home to Jerusalem, and he gives Absalom his old house back, but he won't see Absalom. He won't give him an audience. He won't visit him. He won't let Absalom come and visit him. And Absalom is, is feeling the regret from his revenge, and he's been gone for a while, and he's desperate to be re reunited with his dad, the king, but David won't see him. And for two years... Absalom is like desperate to get an audience with David, but David won't see him. David ignores him time after time after time. And what's interesting, at this point in, in history, we don't really know. There's no record of what happened to David's second son in line, and Absalom is his third son. But since Absalom has killed Amnon, Absalom is actually next in line to become the king of Israel. And Absalom's the, Absalom, though, he's stuck in limbo. He can't talk to his dad about the future. He can't talk to his dad about the kingdom, and David won't see him, and nobody will even give his dad his messages, and the family's ignoring him, and he kind of feels like he's on house arrest. But even on house arrest, he has servants. And so one day, he sends his servants to Joab's fields. Remember Joab, the commander of the army that actually had Uriah uh, put into the hottest part of the battle? A Absalom sends servants to Joab's fields and has them burn all of his crops, and that, of course, gets Joab's attention. 
And Joab comes to see Absalom. He's like, what are you doing? And Absalom says, I've got to see my father. I'm desperate to see my father. And you, you're close enough to him. You can get something arranged. And Joab agrees to get a message to David, but he's not willing to risk David's anger. And so he sends a storyteller, a woman, to David to tell David a story. And she kind of does to David what Nathan the prophet did to David. She tells David a story. And again, David gets so frustrated with the character in the story, so enraged with the character in this woman's story. And, and then, you know, just when he's, you know, calling for this man's justice and all of these kinds of things, she, she does another Nathan and she points a finger and she says, David, that's you. You are the guy in the story. And you need to see your son Absalom. And Joab comes into the room and Joab agrees with her and says, David, you need to see your son Absalom. And so Absalom gets his audience with David. And there's this powerful kind of moving moment, even amongst all the tragedy and the horror when Absalom comes into the throne room and David doesn't really say anything to him and David's estranged son is now before his father and, and he kneels and David puts his hand on his head and it's a sign that what you have done has been forgiven but it doesn't ever feel like anything's been forgiven because David then sends Absalom back out of the room and David never, we don't see in history any, any time again where David ever wants to see his son Absalom. And let me just say to all the Christians like, don't go to the Old Testament for family advice. It's horrible. It's horrific. You need the new covenant for that. Stay, go to Matthew and stay to the right. Just like, don't look to the Old Testament. And, and it just never feels like anything ever gets you know, brought back together. And Absalom, of course, he's confused. Absalom is a little bit angry at this point. I'm trying to make things better. I'm trying to, to patch things over. And anger drives him to this desperate move. Bitterness drives him to kill again, or at least to attempt to kill again, because he thinks, you know, it's my throne anywhere. Maybe he thinks it's my throne eventually, so I might as well move things along, and I'm just going to take the throne now, and who cares what happens to my father? And he plots to take the throne from David, but he's smart. He's smart. He knows that David still has the favor of all the people. He knows that David's still crafty and still strong, and he has the loyalty of the, the subjects and the soldiers, and if you're going to overthrow a king, you'd better have more people backing you than he does. So Absalom gets up early one day when he decides to make this plan against David, and he, he takes a folding chair and a folding table and paints a hand-painted sign and goes and sits outside the gates of Jerusalem, and he puts up a, a banner that says, free legal advice right here. And in those days, if you wanted to have legal matters settled, you would have to go to the king or go to the king's courts. And there would be advisors and counselors and lawyers and judges that you'd have to present your case before. But the lines were super long. And you didn't always get the, the best ruling. Sometimes the wealthiest people got the best ruling. Sounds a lot like today, can I hear? I, and so Absalom is short-circuiting this judicial process, a messed up judicial process. But here's the thing about it. Absalom's good at it. Absalom's smart, man, and he's, he's handsome. The Bible tells us he's handsome. He's just, he's got, you know, one of those smiles, one of those faces, one of those charismas about him, and he's good at judging, and he's fair, and he's persistent, and for four years, Absalom sets himself up as a champion and a hero of the common man of Israel. And history tells us in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites, not just the wealthy ones, toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so, so he stole the hearts of the people. The people started to say, man, Absalom's a great guy. Man, I really like Absalom. I couldn't even get in to see the king. The palace doesn't care anything about me. Man, Absalom should be a judge. 
Absalom should be a ruler, you know. We need some fresh blood. His dad's getting kind of old. Maybe it's time for a king change. We like, we like that Absalom for four years. Absalom lays the foundation for the moment that he takes the throne from his father, the king. And the way he does it is so brilliant. You guys got to see this. This is so brilliant. And I think here in 2019, we'll totally get exactly what Absalom's doing. Look what Absalom does. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel. So all over the land, he sends all of these secret messengers, okay? Sends them out throughout the tribes of Israel. And he says, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. It's fake news. He set up a social media network to set up fake news. It wasn't true, but it didn't need to be true. He just needed people to believe it. And there are no newspapers. There are no news broadcasts. There's no live at five with Perd Happily. There's nothing, you know, nobody there to report on what's actually going on. No radio, no internet. Just at a certain date, at a certain time, all over the kingdom, people heard this fake news. Absalom is king now, and he is in Hebron. And so when people hear it, they hear it coming from all these different sources. Well, I heard about it in Fairfield. Well, I heard about it in Vallejo. Well, I was in Napa. I was in Vacaville. We all heard the same thing. And I heard that David's not king because he died. I heard that David's not king because he abdicated the throne. And we don't know really the details, but it must be true because we're hearing about it from all over the kingdom. And just like that, Absalom has already won the hearts of the people. They're happy to let this be true. They're happy to help this become true. And people start celebrating all over the kingdom. They start throwing parties with big banners. Congratulations, King Absalom. We didn't even know it happened. But now you're the king. Absalom stole the throne and didn't do a thing except start up Facebook in 10th century B.C. It's amazing. And 16 years after his sin with Bathsheba, 16 years after he's introduced cancer from his actions and his behaviors and his collapse and and compromise of his integrity. 16 years after that episode, when he was warned by Nathan, David's world is upside down. His family is broken beyond repair. There are dreams he had for his children that not only they won't come true, they can't. Some of his children are dead. Some of his children are disgraced. Some of his children are murderers. His, his first son raped his daughter. His third son murdered his first son. Now his third son has stolen the throne. And David's world is coming down around him. And he's, he's not totally caught off guard. He had heard rumors of what is happening. He tells everyone that's still in Jerusalem, everyone's still on Team David, hey, we've got to leave the city. Absalom's going to come for the actual throne. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And so David abandons the throne to save the city. And at 61 years old, David is a fugitive again. David's heading into the wilderness again. He just did this 40 years ago. He's already been here before. He's, he thought that he was past this, right? He's running from the supposed king in Israel. He's running from his home again. He's running from people who should have loved him again. This was not the dream. This was not what he had planned. This is not the way that he expected to spend the last season of his life. His dreams had not come true. His dreams would not come true. And because of Absalom's hatred and now because of Absalom's actions, David's dreams cannot come true. And there we are. And this is us. 
Maybe our, our circumstances aren't quite as horrific, but there we are feeling exactly what David is feeling, abandoned. Hello, somebody. Feeling betrayed by people who we thought would always love us. We're angry with God. We're frustrated with God, looking for someone to blame. And so maybe we turn and we might as well blame God, right? After all, if anyone could have prevented this, shouldn't God have prevented this? I prayed and God never answered, right? I can't force someone else to do right. I can't force someone else to be right. But surely God should have forced someone else to do right or to be right. Why go on? Why should I try again? I waited and I waited and look how he's treated me. I waited and I waited and I hoped and look how she has treated me. Look what she has said to me. And I don't deserve to be overlooked like this. After all I've done for them, after all the sacrifices that we... Hello, somebody. Like This is life. This is not just one man in an ancient book. This is now. This is us. These are our families and our circumstances and our, our pain. And we were honest. And we thought if we stayed honest that good things would happen to us, right? And we were honest and we missed out on the opportunity. We were honest and we lost the job. And, and this is where, again, week two kind of intersects with our lives because when we get into these, these circumstances where we're angry, when we get into these circumstances where we're, where we're feeling isolated and cut off from everybody and we're afraid, we start trying to do things to help ourselves and we end up hurting ourselves even more. We try and do some things to relieve the stress and relieve the pain and we end up with more regret. We create more debt right? We get things off of our chest and we give people a piece of our mind and we end up with knives in our back. And sometimes it doesn't even feel like it's our fault and sometimes it's not. But there are other times that it is our fault. It's just taken 10 years for it to get here. Sometimes it's just taken a little while before the weight of our behavior fully comes to rest on us. And the thing is, in week two, when we looked at David, David had taken matters into his own hands. David had acted on his own, and when David acted on his own, people paid with their own lives, but he's 61 now. He's been here before. David knows better, and David's attitude and David's trust in God is now an amazing testimony for us. If we can get this right, listen to me for the next little bit, pay attention. If we can get what David says next, what David does next, if we can get this right, it's a game changer, and it can save us from heartache. It can save us from pain compounded on top of other pain. And, and David gets a caravan of all of his supporters and everyone in the city and the palace, it's family. Everyone in the city and the palace, it's family, a family. Gets them all together, gets them all in line, and they all start leaving the city to escape from Absalom and his coming army. And everybody in the immediate vicinity gets the news. No, David really is still the king. And Absalom is coming to do violence. And David is doing what he has to to spare the city and the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Where are we going, David? I don't know. Just head to the wilderness. David, where are we going? I don't know. But just head to the place of setback. Head to the place where nothing ever grows. Head to the place of delay. Head to the place where nothing ever flourishes. And we've all been through this in our lives. Sometimes because of our own actions and sometimes because of the actions of people that we thought were the ones who loved us. And David, he goes across the valley, but he's still kind of minding the caravan as they go by, and he's you know, trying to, to boost morale as people go by, making sure that everyone makes it out of the city. And then something happens that if we're not careful or if we don't know a lot of the background, we can just kind of read right past it. And it happens when David sees this man named Zadok, who was a priest of the Lord's temple, and he was responsible for protecting the Ark of the Covenant, which was a symbol 
of God's presence. In verse 24, it tells us Zadok was there too. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the ark of the covenant of God. Now, you got to understand this. To the Old Testament people, to the people of Israel, this was a huge deal. The ark of the covenant was a symbol of God's presence. You, in the Old Testament, you could not get closer to God than getting close to this box that was supposed to represent the presence of God. And to a lot of them, for a lot of years, it had been almost a good luck charm. Like, if the Ark of the Covenant is with us, we can't lose that battle. If we'll bring the Ark of the Covenant with us to this fight, we'll never lose that fight. If the Ark was with you, you were sure to win because that meant that God was on your side. And as David watches the caravan coming out and the priests carrying the Ark out of the city, he knew what that was saying to the people of the city. It looked like God was leaving the city. It looked like God was abandoning them, and he knew what that would do to their hearts and their minds. And at this point, David is all about sparing the people. His perspective has changed. His, his priorities have shifted. He's become, or he's becoming, the kind of king that God had always wanted him to become. And David, at this point, he's trying to save them from physical pain and emotional pain and spiritual pain. And he puts other people's needs, he puts other people's safety above his own need to be comforted by a symbol of God's presence. And this is so powerful. And this is kind of the whole message today, boiled down to a nutshell. This is what we should take away. This is what David finally had learned by 61 years of age. But look at what his trust in God caused David to say. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If, everybody say if. If is hard, right? If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. See, David's showing us that he learned his lesson from when he was 22 years old. I've tried manipulating the story before. Horrible outcome. I've tried controlling the outcome before. Did not come out like I wanted it to. This time, I'm doing what I need to to put others before me, and I'm going to leave the results to God. There are too many things to try and control. And I had tried to hold them all in my fingers before, but things just slipped through my hands. Things got out of control. Things got away from me. And people got hurt that I never meant to get hurt. I said things I didn't mean to say. I did things I never thought that I would do before I was in that circumstance. So this time, I'm leaving everything in the hands of God. So if, and wow, if, if is hard. Because what if is saying is, if I find favor, but I might not. If it's God's will that things will work out like I hope they will, but they might not. It's hard to trust God when there's an if. See, we want things settled. We want to know for sure that everything's going to turn out like we want it. We want to make sure that our path forward is pain-free, problem-free. And a lot of times, as, as followers of Jesus, it's just not, and it's hard to trust God when there's an if. It's hard to release something knowing, being okay with the fact that things might not end up like I dreamed they would. But David's not even done with the if on this part. He talks, him through the, he talks himself through the other side of the if. He talks himself now through the worst possible outcomes later. And he says, but if he, if God says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Wow. That's an incredible, incredible trust in God. What does this say about David's attitude about the goodness of God? 
My own son is coming to take my life. My own son is coming to take my throne. He's going to put the city to sword unless something else happens. But I don't need God's, the symbol of God's presence to go with me. God is bigger than a box. God doesn't just live in a small container. God can control things that I never can. And so if God says it's time for me to go, if God says it's time for someone else to rule in my place, let God do to me whatever seems good to him. And maybe in, if you're more familiar with Jesus' words in the New Testament, this is where we might say, not my will, but thy will be done. Not my will, God. Not how I want things to come out, but how you see things as the best way to come out. God, every time I try and get things my way, I end up getting in the way. And David, his whole world had turned upside down. David had lost all of his hopes and all of his dreams, but he found a confidence, and a trust in God. David had broken God's laws, but then David allowed God's laws to break him. And David chose to never abandon God, even though the circumstances around him seemed to be screaming at him that God had abandoned him. And David said, I'm not going to war with my son. That's what's natural and obvious and easy for me. I'm not risking the safety of the city. I don't even need a symbol of God's presence. I trust in God's goodness even when circumstances aren't good. And David sends the ark back into the city and David goes to the wilderness and Absalom takes the city without a fight. But it's an empty victory because he, doesn't, he didn't kill the king. And he sits on a throne that will be disputed until his father David is dead. And Absalom calls in his, his advisors. It's a man named Ahithophel. That's a hard name to say. And another man named Hushai. Ahithophel and Hushai. And Ahithophel, people think, was Bathsheba's grandfather, actually. He was an incredibly smart man. And he was against David, obviously. And he tells Absalom, go quick and catch David before he can regroup. And, and then Hushai comes in. But it turns out that Hushai was actually a spy for David. He was actually on David's side, and Absalom doesn't know it, and he gets advice from David's own spy. And Hushai tells Absalom, no, 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 don't go quick. Be patient. You know your dad is crafty, and he's strong. It's better to take your time, make sure you gather a really, really big army, and then go after your father, David. And Ahithophel is so mad. He's so angry because Absalom listens to Hushai, and Ahithophel knows what the result's going to be. David's going to win, and Ahithophel knows that he's spoken against David, so he just goes home and hangs himself. Like, I'm just, I know I'm going to die, so I might as well get it over with. It's an amazing story with so much drama. You should read your Bible. It's, it's, it's amazing. And so time is given, and David has a chance to organize. And what David does, because he's so outnumbered, is he chooses a battleground in a forest. So brilliant. In a forest, large numbers don't matter. What, num what matters is being small and maneuverable. And Absalom comes for David with his big army, and David's men rout the army of Absalom. But David has told his men, make sure that you take Absalom alive. Don't be harsh with him. And sure enough, in the battle, Absalom is captured. And while Absalom is captured, they try and, and end the fight that way. But Absalom, Absalom's armies keep fighting. And so Joab, David's commander, realizes that those armies are not going to stop fighting until Absalom is dead. And so he pulls Absalom out in plain view of everybody. And Joab kills Absalom in the sight of everyone. And Absalom's armies break apart and they run home. And a messenger runs to David with the news. And David's first and only question was not, did we win? David didn't ask, are we safe? Am I safe now? David's first and his only question is, is the young man Absalom 
safe. And David hears the news that his son Absalom is dead. And the king was shaken. And he went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And David is restored as king, but the throne never felt the same. And David mourned the death of his son Absalom, and he's heartbroken, and his dreams are dead, and his hopes are dead. But David never lost confidence, and he never lost his trust in God, right up to the time that David died, short nine years later. And I think one of the things that makes the history and the story of David so compelling and, and so believable is that the biographers didn't hide any of David's flaws. All of his weaknesses and all of his failures and, and, and all of his mistakes and doubts, they're all on full display. Nobody sugarcoats it all. But with all of the flaws that he had, one thing was learned early on in the life of David that guided him later on. And that was this, that David began to trust and hope in God instead of trusting and hoping in himself. Yes, he had episodes early on where he did not, but he learned from his mistakes. He fell, but David fell forward. And when things didn't go David's way and it was someone else's fault, and when things didn't go David's way but it was his own fault, through it all we see David coming to this, this amazing trust in God that let God do to me whatever seems good to him. God is in control and I am so clearly not. Hello, somebody. God is in control and we are so clearly not. We can't control other people. We can't control the outcomes. We can't control the circumstances. We can't even keep all of the promises that we make. How many parents ever promised their kids they'd take them to Disneyland? And like you just took them to Six Flags. Promise your kids Disneyland. You just take them to Chuck E. Cheese. Like, you know, just... We make promises that are out of our control to keep. There are so many variables and so many things that are up in the air and so many things that slip through our fingers and we never meant to do that. We never meant to have that happen. We never meant for things to turn out the way. Surely there has to be somebody greater than us in control. Surely there has to be somebody besides us who has all of this in the palm of his hand. And David came to that realization. David came to that point of trust that when I can't control my life, I know who who can? And I choose to put it all into his hands. Listen to me. This is something so big. You have to take this away if you're a Christian or you're struggling with faith or trying to come back to being a Christian. Answered prayers are not the foundation of our faith. We don't follow Jesus because we get everything we ask for. And we don't leave Jesus because sometimes our prayers do not get answered like we want. We don't trust God because we ask him for something and it turns out exactly as we want. My dreams came true. God is good. But then our dreams don't come true and prayers never get answered and God must be absent. It's dangerous for us to base our faith on whether or not the things that we ask for come out like we ask for them. If they only come out like we ask for them, that means that God is only as smart as us. If God's only as smart as me, we're in trouble. Hello, if God's only as smart as you, we're all in trouble. Many apologies, and I hope I didn't offend you, but you've locked your keys in your car before. Come on, you've walked out the house with mismatched socks. You've messed up on your bank account, right? You burned the stakes. Like every Sunday, Dad, you burned the stakes. Like we're all just, 
We're not perfect. But there is somebody above us that is. What if we knew that God had a better answer than the one that we prayed for? Come on. Follow-up question. Doesn't he? What if you knew that God had a better answer than the one that you asked for? And then ask yourself, doesn't he? Doesn't he? When things don't seem to be going our way, when circumstances don't end up like we hope, when people disappoint, when what we were hoping in disappoints, when dreams don't come true, and when dreams can't come true, don't assume that God is missing. Do not assume that God doesn't care. God is faithful. God is good. God is loving. And God will, oh man. I love, there's a quote by a pastor named Timothy Keller. I love this quote. God will answer your prayers by giving you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. That is so powerful. God will give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. And as everybody's leaving the city, I loved what David said. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back. Look at this. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Think about this, guys. Our idea of good changes based on whether or not we ate breakfast. Our idea of what's good changes depending on what kind of mood we are in. Our idea of what's good changes with our circumstances. My idea of good usually just means that I'm trying to avoid all pain. But what if what's best for me actually involves some pain? Anybody ever had to have surgery? Anybody ever had to have a root canal? Like sometimes the best path forward is something that might hurt for a little while. Trust in the goodness of God. Trust in the love of God. He's not just here to underwrite all of your expectations and all of your dreams. He's so much better than that. He's so much wiser than that. He's so much stronger than that. He loves us, but he loves us too much to give us everything that we want. And So God, I've been here before. God, I've tried to manage these outcomes before. And just like David, God, help us to learn that God, it's best for me to surrender my idea of good and I trust in you. So do to me whatever seems good, not to me, but whatever seems good to you. The musicians could come this morning. As a matter of fact, why don't we all stand in the room? I wonder if there's anyone here this morning, and you don't have to raise your hands right now, but I wonder if there's anybody here that God's talking to that maybe you have broken dreams. I wonder if there's anybody in the room that maybe has circumstances or relationships that they just seem impossible. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been wounded. Maybe you're feeling betrayed by a relationship or somebody that you put your hope in, somebody that you were counting on. Today's a day for healing. Today, before you leave this place, you can, can have a healing and a, and a trust that begins to reopen and re-blossom. Your faith in God can be restored in this room this morning. But healing begins with trusting in the goodness of God. Your way forward begins with you trusting that God is not only smarter than us, but that God loves us more than we understand, and that God will always give us what is best for us, even when it doesn't in the moment seem very good for us. Healing begins when we see God as in control. Healing begins with believing not just that he's, not just that he's forgiven us, but that he's with us. 
Not that he's just taking care of some of the things in our past, but that he holds a better future for us in his hand. He has something for us we can never arrive to on our own. It begins with believing that he's not forgotten you. It begins with trusting that he has heard every prayer, that every tear that you've ever cried has been bottled up and is stored as a memorial in heaven, just like the scriptures tell us. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.